I think we need to look at all of the, everything that's happened as a learning opportunity, not to go back to how we used to teach, but how do we take what we've learned to move forward, right? So now we're in school, students have computers, teachers have learned to navigate teaching virtually. How do we build that into our daily work moving forward? Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sofronis. What steps can we take to strategically support English learners through learning loss while also prioritizing social and emotional well-being? What approach can districts take with professional development to support educators in identifying learning loss and teaching language development in this environment? How can schools use this experience with distance and remote learning to reimagine in-person learning in the fall? We discuss these questions and much more with regular contributor Vicki Saldala, the director of bilingual and ESOL at Broward County Public Schools in Florida. Vicki was a panelist on our In This Together docuseries, and she continues to share her time and expertise in multilingual education as we continue to adapt to meet the needs of a very diverse group of students. You can find Vicki Saldala's full bio, as well as some great resources and episode takeaways on our ELL community page at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. And remember that Elevation has two L's. If you haven't done so already, we invite you to join our ELL community while you're there so you can get weekly resources, strategies, and tips that you can use right away. Without any further ado, here is our conversation with Vicki Saldala. Vicki Saldala from Broward County, thank you for joining us once again on Highest Aspirations. Good morning, Steve. How are you doing, my friend? I'm doing well. We're getting through it. We're here. It's been a while since I chatted with you. A lot's happened since then, but it feels like yesterday somehow. It sure does, but it is a pleasure to be here again and just kind of recap the work that we've been doing in Broward County. Yeah, for sure. Looking forward to it. And um, I want to start with it with a, with a term that you know, admittedly, we've been using at Elevation and others are using quite a bit. And I'm not sure where we stand on the term now. It's learning loss. Um, and it's, I, I'm curious to hear, number one, what you think about that term. Is it something that you and your colleagues are thinking uh, a lot about? Or is this term something that's been like created by research and media and now is all over the place? What's your take on it? So that's an interesting question. And yes, learning loss is a, uh, a term that is being used widely. Um, here in Broward, we're not using that term as much. We have adopted what we call AAP, and that stands for Adequate Academic Progress. We're focusing on students who are not making adequate academic progress, right? And so we had to define that. That's the first thing we had to do in Broward. What is the definition for those students? Who are the students we are identified? And so we looked at an array of assessments that we give in Broward, and then we made those cuts, right? So if they were not at performing at this level, that's a student who's an AAP student. Um, and so what we've done in Broward is we identified about 59,000 students in grades K through 12 who met this definition of AAP. And so we had schools reach out to those families and invite them to come back to school. Many, these were 59,000 students who were not in school, but were doing home learning. So now they're and invited so we, to go back in person. Yeah, we, okay. we said to the parents, look, based on this data that we pulled, your child is not making, not making adequate academic progress. 
And we want to invite you and encourage you to bring your child back to the school setting that they can benefit from. And so many parents still decline to bring their child back and that's okay, they had that right. But many did bring their children back. Um, one area that, one definition that we use for these students as well, had nothing to do with really test scores. I requested that we also include in the AAP definition, students who were at the beginning levels of language acquisition or language proficiency based on access or based on our district screener. And you'd find interesting that I actually got a lot of pushback from some people about adding that, not tying it to any kind of an assessment score on a benchmark or a state assessment. And they questioned, why do you want to classify these students as AAP students and why do you want them to come back? And really my, my answer to that was, I don't feel that they're not making progress because we have beginner students who are actually doing very well in the home environment. Uh, but I also felt that our beginner students haven't had a chance to come into our school setting yeah. yet. Yeah. They were brand new students to our district, um, whether it was at the end of last year when the pandemic started or they came in the summer and they had not physically been in our buildings. And here they are beginning language proficiency students new to the United States, new to Broward County, and we just hand them a laptop and ask them to start working from home. Well, we already know that language acquisition is a little difficult in this setting. So I wanted to give those families and those students the opportunity to be invited back into the schools, mostly because they needed to be in a school setting. They needed to be around people and you know, really get engaged in the language. So that was a, a very, um, that was very interesting because I didn't expect to get a little pushback from that. Um, and like I shared, I, and I told principals, you know, look at the data. If you have a child like that and you know they're performing well, you can still invite the family to come back. And if they choose not to, then they don't. Um, and we did. We did have quite a few families that did bring their students back. So let me just clarify. So you had, you had 59,000 students who you identified. Uh, in within those fifty nine thousand, you had some students who were newcomers and weren't necessarily, or 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 had, were new to the school and weren't necessarily taken because they didn't have adequate academic progress. Mm -hmm. Out of this, is that right? Yes. So we had ten thousand who were already at school, and we had nine thousand three hundred within that fifty nine thousand. Nine thousand three hundred were ELLs who were still at home. Got it. And out of the ones, the, the ones that you had to determine whether or not they were making adequate academic progress, what, how were you determining who they were? You said it was a combination of the screeners and some, uh, some of the access as well from last year. Is that what you were using? And, and, and I guess the second part of that question is how, how difficult or simple, I guess, has it been to, to get that data and to parse it out the way that you needed it to figure out who those students were? And do you think that like you're using last year's data, right? Because they haven't. So was We're that access testing now, right? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did so that process go? Yeah, so we have an amazing student assessment department. And in addition, you know, we do have all of our data and elevation, but our student assessment department is the one that, you know, uh, pulled all that data for schools and identified all the students who met this criteria that the state, that our district set forth to identify who the adequate academic progress students were. And then the lists were given to schools and the schools just started either making phone calls, sending letters home, sending emails and so forth. Got it. Yeah. Cause one of the questions I was going to ask you and you already answered it is like, how do you, 
you know, there, there, there's a lack of availability in data right now in many districts, largely because of obviously the pandemic and not being able to screen students in the right way. And access now is supposed to be happening now. I think it's happening in most places, but it's in person and there's some flexibility, but not a lot. So it sounds like you were able to use the data that you already have and use some of the tools that you had to kind of parse it out and your assessment team, as you mentioned, to kind of make sure that you had it all. It's a huge challenge for a lot of districts. So it's, it's great that you're able to do that. Well, we were very fortunate that by the time schools closed down last year for the pandemic, we had just finished access testing. Right, right. So we did have 2020 access data available for us, which is technically the most current data that we have. Yeah. Um, all right. So let me ask you about those students. And by the way, I, I, I like the term adequate uh, academic progress. I like it how it's kind of a little bit more asset based than than the term learning loss that, that all of us are using. But regardless of what we're what we're calling it, what are you what are you like when you pull those students and you think about who those students are? And they're probably on a wide spectrum, just like we always talk about English learners are one you know homogeneous group. Um, what are the one or two things you're most concerned about with those students when you bring them back? Like, what is it that you want to make sure that you're having them gain as we go back to whatever normal looks like at some point in time? I think the most important thing for all of us and all of our students right now is that social, emotional, mental well-being. Right? Still, it doesn't change, right? Because we've been talking no. about this since March. Because now you're coming back to school and it's not the school that we knew when we left in March. And if you're new, it's a new, a new a whole new feeling. And I'll give you an example. I visited a school the other day um, and it was, in, it was in the morning when students were being dropped off. A little girl got out of her car. Her mom was dropping her off at school, five-year-old, six-year-old, she was in kindergarten. And I hear her mom, mom crying out for her mom. And the teacher in the in the driveway went up to her and said, honey, what's wrong? She goes, I left my mask in the car. And she started crying because she had left her mask in the car. She was calling for her mom to return. And the teacher had to console her and say, honey, so, don't worry. We have more masks in the office. I'm going to give you one. That's not normal. <laughs> right? That this little girl is starting her day crying because she left her mask in the car. Yeah, you know... <laughs> There, there's so much as I get my like little Google alerts and articles that come in and as I share them with the ELL community on our brief, there, there has been so much about learning loss as it, as it, as it relates to academics and it's there and it exists and, and you know that and I know that and everyone knows that. But I'm seeing both in conversations that I have with folks like you and even frankly in my own family, like in my kids, I have a nine-year-old who's in third grade and similar reactions to those things that seem to be minor. And so, yes, you have students who are, who are losing um, language and content practice, which is going to put them a little behind. But as you're reiterating here, and as you're repeating over and over again, and rightly so, we also have students like the one you just mentioned, who are going, these problems aren't just, and I say this as a parent as well, like it's heartbreaking. These, these challenges and, and problems aren't just going to go away. So how do we, I mean, I guess that begs the question, like if that's a big concern for you, which it obviously is, what plans do you all have to, to, to try to help those students, particularly those English learners who are dealing with their own sets of problems when it comes to social emotional? I mean, is this, is this inspiring new programs and is this over, overtaking what some people might be talking about in the terms of, in the idea of, of learning loss for just academics? 
Right. And, and you bring a good point because, you know, we also experienced some um, uh, health COVID related issues at home. And one of the things that um, I gained for myself as empathy was I cannot imagine um, having to teach a lesson knowing that in my home, these things are going on. So imagine the teacher who has to stand in front of this computer and deliver an energetic lesson to 30 students when she or he or someone in the family may be going, whether it's COVID, whether it's a loss of uh, job, whatever the case may be. And then what about those students on the receiving end, right? Who are trying to listen to a teacher, but their parents had to go to work and they're, so all those things that may have always been there, but are now amplified because of COVID. And now we, if we don't change our teaching and our expectations and our empathy towards some of these students and these home situations, that learning loss as you're calling it is just going to get bigger because the anxiety, the mental stress is not gonna let these kids learn. It's a, a what is it, a fight and fe fear? What is that saying? Fight or flight, fight or flight, right? Fight or flight, right? Yeah. So um, here in Broward, I could tell you um, definitely the social emotional um, team is constantly putting things out. We put out uh, weekly, um, vignettes and every teacher is asked to start their day with a mental activity um, you know whether it's some kind of mindfulness activity some kind of just meditation so teachers don't have to plan them they don't have to go looking for them the district is already creating them creating the links and they share them weekly with teachers to start their day with those with the students um, in addition you know on a bigger scale we're bringing in you know, speakers and doing webinars, whether it's, uh, you know, after hours for teachers in the evenings for families. But, you know, at the beginning, this whole notion of being virtual, wow, we were getting hundreds of, where we would have a face-to-face -face meeting and you'd get 50 parents. Now we were having these virtual meetings. We were getting hundreds of parents. I remember we talked about that. Yeah. This is the way to go. But you know what? That slowly dies out too. Has it? Yeah. So now you have an event and you're still thinking you're going to get hundreds of people, but now it's just becoming the norm. Oh, it's another webinar. Oh, it's another. And you're not getting the turnout or people are just honestly busy and can't, <laughs> but we have to keep inventing ways to, to bring these families in and not lose touch with them. It's a really interesting point you just made. And I think something that we need to consider, I don't know if at first it was like, the nostalgia or the convenience uh, of, you know, those kinds of meetings. And you weren't the only one who talked about um, how, you know, meetings that would normally draw 10 people would now draw hundreds. And now if that is waning, what is the thing that's making it wane? And how can we make sure that we hold on to the advantages that we had that remote learning offered? Um, because I don't, I, most teachers and educators that I talk to don't want to go back to whatever normal was. We want to kind of make it better, but how quickly we kind of evolve from one thing to another and muscle memory takes over um, of what we, how we, how we always used to do it. So that's an interesting thing to consider. How do you improve it? How do you make it better? How do you make it more exciting to keep bringing people in and use it as an advantage? So there's two things that we've also been doing here. And I, I don't remember if I've spoken before about Bria, which is our Broward remote 
instruction assistance. I don't know if I had mentioned that. I don't think we've talked about that. We talked about Parent Academy. I know that. Okay. So Bria is our, it's not really tutoring, but it's like homework help. So we've set up this Bria line. Uh, it starts at 3.30 and it goes till eight o'clock at night. And um, we have teachers on there, district staff, and students calling for homework help, one-on-one. We have gotten such a great turnout with this. So it goes to show that the students need help, right? So it's, it's just taken off. It started off slow, but it has really taken off. We're getting hundreds of calls, um, two, three, 400 calls a night from students asking for homework help, basically one-on-one um, versus tutoring. So we still have our tutoring camps um, out of Title III, we fund language enrichment camps at schools after schools. And all of our schools apply because they know there's a need but you should see how many reach out to me afterwards and they're like, I can't get the attendance. I only have three kids attending. Mm-hmm. Only four. So if the students are face-to-face, some of them will stay, but the ones that are virtual, they are just not, they don't, when the school day ends, they don't want to do anything else virtual and they're not logging in for camp. So I thought that was interesting that we can't get them over here for tutoring, but yet they are calling the hotline or the homework helpline, Bria, for that one-on-one assistance. Yeah, that's really interesting. And, you know, you said um, that it shows that the students need help, but it also shows that that program, sometimes students need help and don't ask for it or access it. In this case, both are happening. They, re- they recognize that they need help or their parents, I'm sure, are involved as well in some cases or families. And so that they're accessing that line, the convenience of it must be, you know, one of the things that makes it easy for them. So that's really good to know. Well, and I think the one-on-one, because again, we're yeah. talking about personalization, right? We're talking yeah. about, hey, now I have someone to talk to for a little bit just me and you versus there's three other students on here. Yeah. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to meet students where they are instead of taking a, you know, like a cookie cutter approach. We talked to Lynn Mark alone about that. Who's our colleague from this together from Prince William. And that was the title of the episode is a cookie cutter approach won't work. We have to find ways to personalize. And that's one great way to do it. Hi everyone. I'm Teddy Rice, president and co-founder of Elevation. The highest aspirations podcast created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to Highest Aspirations. All right. So I'm glad we, I'm really glad it kind of went, went out a little detour there, but I'm glad we did because we talked about the importance and the continuation of the social emotional needs um, and how we can't really let our foot off the gas on those things, which I feel like might be happening in, in at, at least from the top looking down. Like, I feel like that's what I'm seeing in the research and that's what I'm seeing on the news everywhere. And the media is all about this, this, you know, academics, but that social emotional piece is still critically important and obviously something that you're spending a lot of time with. I do want to shift over a little bit though, to, to content and language, because I think it's important that we, that we talk about it. Um, the gold standard for you and for everyone has always been to kind of infuse, you know, to, to bring these together, to bring content and language together, uh, to support English learners so that they can work on both, um, at the same time. And, and that's great. And I think it's happening in some places, but are we, 
being too idealistic when when we say that that can happen now, given everything that we just talked about, partially remote, partially hybrid, partially in person. What what ingredients do you need in place to to make that happen now, so that we can make sure that we have students who are making, as you call it, adequate academic progress? So, Steve, if it was difficult when we were one hundred percent in person, I can guarantee you that it's even harder now in this environment, right? Because when I when we were 100% in person, so pre-COVID days, right, you would visit a school, um, a teacher had a general ed class with a couple of ELLs in there, and we were always fighting to make sure those ELLs were getting their accommodations, that the teacher was making uh, modifications to her lesson plan to include language objectives. How are you meeting the language needs? So that was always a battle pre-COVID days. So now it's still a bigger struggle because now, you know, it's this environment. It's very different from teachers to do those breakout rooms and meet the needs of those individual students, which is again, I think why we're having this large learning loss as you call, or we call AAP, um, because it, it's become very difficult for teachers to meet students where they are. Um, in our department, we are just continuing to build webinars, try to get ourselves invited into teachers' virtual classrooms so that we could see how we can help, how the teachers are delivering the lessons so we can model how to do that. Um, helping teachers or reminding teachers that an ELL strategy is good for all students, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not just ELLs. So don't think that because we're gonna call out this ELL strategy, that you're harming student, the other students. No, doing this strategy is gonna be good for all your kids, right? So uh, my team and I have been talking about what are we gonna do this summer for PD? What are we gonna offer? Last summer, it was really around building our Canvas courses, teaching remotely. How do you do lessons online? We Setting up the tools and the infrastructure. Up the tools, right? We created a Canvas course for teachers with all the tools. But in talking to my team, we feel that we are going to use this summer to kind of go back on pedagogy. Let's backtrack a little bit. That's refreshing. Right? We're trying to go up here and meeting all these remote, all this new technology. We're going to have to go a little bit and let's dig deep into pedagogy. Let's go back and look at Cummings. What does language acquisition look like? You know, high order thinking skills, or, or we need to look at all of those things again and refresh our teachers on that because a lot of that is going to be applicable for all students. And so that's one thing we've agreed on that we're going to work on this summer is RPD has to kind of go back to ground zero and remind teachers what it looks like to learn language and then what it looks like to learn language in this new environment. Yeah, so you you actually got into to my next question. You were talking about the the bringing language and content together, which you admit has always been challenging and is more challenging now. And then I was going to ask you how PD is is you know what you, what you're doing to to kind of make that happen, and you kind of answered that question. But I want to get a little bit more specific. Um, are you and it's you know you mentioned making sure that teachers uh, have that pedagogy in mind um, and about language acquisition to make over this summer to make sure that next summer you're you're prioritizing that. My question is: Are you are you who are you directing that PD to? Are you directing it directly at classroom teachers who are working with English learners, or is it your 
uh, ELL staff, your ESOL staff, that's then going to kind of turn that around. Because I think that's a, that's like a, a really important consideration. Different districts are doing different things. And in a district like Broward, where you have, I mean, a lot of English, I imagine most, if not all of your content teachers are working with English learners in some capacity. How are you go- setting that up and organizing it? So in Broward, we don't have specific ESOL staff at schools. We have what we call an ESOL contact at every school. And that contact usually uh, is very involved with compliance and may not always be an instructional staff member. They could be a paraprofessional who is not a staff member. They do attend our PD and they can benefit from what we show at PDs about instruction because many times they do work with small groups of students um, as part of their job. But the, the PD will be geared towards all teachers, all K-12, whether it's content, elementary, general, whatever it is, the RPD is delivered like that. We do a lot of collaboration with our elementary learning and secondary learning department. Um, just two weeks ago, one of my staff members uh, was asked at an elementary school to deliver some PD on simple uh, little workshops like that. How do you teach consonant vowel consonant in a classroom that has ELLs. I mean, my first thought is, well, you still teach CBC the same way. The question is what strategies do you bring in? So what we did is we partnered with our elementary learning department that already had those workshops in place. And we partnered with them and it was a team presentation, right? Here's how you deliver CBC. And here's from the ELL perspective, what are the strategies and supports you need to have in place to make sure ELLs understand the CDC. So that's that's kind of the way we approach PD in our district. We do have our standalone PD for ELLs, but always trying to tie it to whether it's a content area or um, a topic or a theme as a whole. Yeah, which brings it back to what you mentioned earlier, which is that you have to make sure that you're letting folks know that good, you know, good teaching and good strategy for English learners are good for all students. And so tying that together and really making that the philosophy must be crucial for you. And I think the key right now is less is more. Our teachers are so overwhelmed, so overwhelmed with so much. So like I told my team, we don't need to create hour and hour long PDs. Let's say you do a a 30 minute PD on two strategies that will help your children learn vocabulary and remote learning. That's, that's a catcher. Oh, I, I'm going to learn two things. Boom. Okay. I'll listen for 30 minutes versus when you go on and on and on. teachers are just, they're overwhelmed. There's been so much PD already in this setting. And honestly, this setting is very easy to shut off because I can just have you running and I could be in the kitchen cooking my dinner and you wouldn't even know it. Right. But you think I'm with you. Yeah. So we have to, again, Look at all angles. Yeah, you have to innovate or else it's just going to get, I mean, it's like anything else. You can't do too much of the same thing over and over again. Otherwise, you're you're not making much progress. Nope. Um, okay, I have two more questions. And one, you know, we're getting into the content stuff. And I'm just, I just want to ask you quickly about like STEM classes and English learners. Because the preliminary research, research seems to be pointing toward those classes are people are most worried about with this idea of learning loss. Reading is another one that I've heard a lot about and rightly so, but with kind of the specialization and the, the manipulatives that you need and what, you know, that many people argue you really need to be in school to, to learn that. Are you seeing those challenges? Um, and, and if so, how have you gone about confronting them? What's the plan moving forward for those content courses for English learners? So um, I did hear yesterday during one of our board workshops that math, 
is a content area where our students are struggling, especially Algebra 1. Um, so there was much conversation yesterday at a district workshop around what are we going to be doing to support these kids. Um, we will be doing spring camps and obviously summer camps. We did have a winter camp during winter break. So the district is trying to find those windows of opportunity where we can provide the, the additional support to students. But I'm gonna go back to what I shared earlier. Not only are we having difficulty getting the students to attend, but we're also finding difficulty finding teachers to teach these because teachers are tired. No amount of money at this point that you wanna pay them as an hourly, do they wanna do it? Many of them want the break. Right. So as, and, the, and the students as, too, the students too have so much and let's not forget that. I mean, they, you know, they want and deserve a break too. So we're getting a lot of pressure from above, um, from the governor down and, you know, that we have to offer as many opportunities as possible to diminish this learning loss. Um, and so they want districts to offer all these opportunities, but they keep forgetting, well, we can offer them, but we can't find teachers and we can't find students. Yeah, so that, that's the kind of combination you need to make those things <laughs> work to make them happen. I was reading an article. I think it was, um, I think it was in the Washington post, but don't quote me on that about so it's somebody had written. It was a policy person from, I think, uh, Fordham. I don't remember some professor. And, and the, the basic premise was that kids need to play this summer and not be in school. And that gets to the social emotional piece. And it, it goes against the grain, I think, of what a lot of people are thinking, which is, and it goes against the grain too of all the funds that are being put into this that really make it so that you have to bring kids in. But it's just a touchy subject. It really is. Our yeah, our superintendent has challenged us that these summer camps must be um, enrichment camps. So yes, bring the students in and you do a couple of hours of academics but they also have to have a fun component to them. So he's, he's challenged us to partner with our community partners, um, you know, do some STEM activities, do robotics, do whatever we can do that the community members can partner with us on so that these camps are not just strictly academics, that we give those students that time for fun. So yeah. Yeah. You got to, you got to like artfully blend those two together. <laughs> you know, you yeah. don't want to, yeah, it's, it's, a, that's, which is tricky as it is. Um, okay. One more question. It's a broad question, but what, I mean, what is your vision uh, or your hope as we go back? Let's say it's, you know, fall 2021, we're going back to school. What, what are your hopes and dreams? Um, well, hopefully we will go back to school a hundred percent in the fall. Um, I think we need to look at all of the, everything that's happened as a learning opportunity, not to go back to how we used to teach, but how do we take what we've learned to move forward, right? So now we're in school, stu students have computers, teachers have learned to navigate teaching virtually. How do we build that into our daily work moving forward? So now you know, in the past, let's say at a high school, um, let's say I'm high school A, you're high school B. Well, in high school A, I have 200 kids that want to learn Italian as a world language, but high school B only has 15. You don't have enough kids to have a teacher to teach Italian, but I have a full-time Italian program. How do we use everything we've learned to now let your 15 kids virtually 
jump into my Italian class and learn Italian, even though you may be across the district, right? right? Those are the kinds of innovative opportunities that we need to build on because we're not doing that now. No, and we can't. It's a great example. But that is something that I think we need to really explore so that in the fall, we can look at all those opportunities to virtually tap into kids from across a district like our size of, you know, 270,000 kids, point A to point B, how do we now able to bring these kids into these other environments and give them experiences they wouldn't have in their own school? Yeah. And you're talking about your district, which I think is great. It's obviously a huge district. So you have lots of, you know, opportunities there, but I was talking to a woman by the name of, um, Dr. Catalina Lopez, who works um, on the Rio Grande Valley, right on the border in West Lake OISD. And, and we were talking about how there's like this, this, she calls it la, la, um, la herida abierta, right? The open wound that, that mm-hmm. they haven't healed yet of this English only situation that they have down there. Even on the border, you would think like 90% plus people are bilingual, but the English only reigns supreme for whatever reason. And she's trying to change mindsets. And what I was t- talking to her about at the end that relates to what you were just saying was, boy, what a great opportunity for people from there who 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 maybe don't don't appreciate enough or or don't put enough value in the fact that they're bilingual and they have these incredible skills. Talking to people where I am, where there's really no bilingual programs. I mean, I'm just you know I'm New Hampshire, and I wish my kids were in bilingual programs. They just don't exist. It's that simple. Um, what if you connected those two students together from different parts of the country? So the district, that's easy, but boy, we could, we have everything we need to do that. I mean, we're doing it right now, you and I. So it's just, I think we just have to keep that in mind. It sounds idealistic and pie in the sky, but it's really not that difficult. No, just takes a little coordination and scheduling. scheduling. <laughs> yeah. And obviously I don't want to, I don't want to belittle uh, the, the fact that those things, because they're, they're big things and putting again, more, more on the plates of, of teachers who are really, really busy right now. So how do you balance it all? It's not, it's easier said than done, but we can dream. <laughs> Great. Well, Vicki Saldela, thank you again for joining us. I know that uh, there's a lot going on, um, you, you know, with, with, with everything and uh, it's, it's not easy to take the time. And I always appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Steve. Thank you so much. Stay safe, everyone. You too. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.